Chapter 17 of Carpenter's World Travels Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 17 Fairbanks, the Chicago of Alaska. Fairbanks, the northern terminus of Uncle Sam's new railway and the point where the river and rail navigation center and join, might be called the hub of Alaska. It is in the heart of the territory almost equal distance from Bering Strait and the Canadian border, and about halfway between the Pacific and the Arctic Oceans. The business of Fairbanks is all the more astonishing when one realizes how inaccessible the town was before the government railroad opened quick passage to the sea. It took me two days to come up the Tanana River from Fort Gibbon to Fairbanks. The Tanana is navigable for some distance above Fairbanks, and its valley has millions of acres of agricultural land. Fairbanks has a delightful individuality. It is a combination of the picturesque and the plain, of the shabby and the sumptuous, of the old and the new. Altogether, it is different from any other town I have ever seen. Take a look at the main business street. It is a wide dirt road with plank sidewalks, from which rise frame buildings of one and two stories. The front walls of the stores extend high above the roofs and are cut off horizontally, making the buildings look taller and giving a jagged skyline. The shops carry a wide assortment for Fairbanks is the trading center of interior Alaska, and goods from here go to the gold mining camps of the Tanana, the Yukon, the Koryukuk, and the Enoka rivers. Some of its wholesale firms do a business that runs into the millions, and steamers are always lying at anchor just off the principal street. There are establishments filled with mining machinery and stores carrying all sorts of goods for miners, including mackinaws and khaki suits for rough wear. They sell high boots of white rubber and hobnailed shoes for tramping over the rocks and through the brush. They have also silks and broadcloths and shoes of fashionable makes. They have moccasins beautifully beaded. Entering the banks, you will see them taking in gold dust at one window and handing out banknotes at another. Every bank buys gold and have all their assaying and melting establishments where the metal is tested and made into bricks to be shipped outside. The crowds on the streets are a mixture. They include men and women as well-dressed as those of any city east of the Alleghenies, and miners clad in blue jeans or khaki. On the street corners are groups of shirt-sleeved men in soft hats or sombreros. Now turn your eyes to the roadways. There are scores of motor vehicles away up here in the heart of Alaska, and jitney buses go regularly each day to the Gold Creeks. There is an overland stage that makes the trip over the beautiful road from Fairbanks to Chitina, the terminus of the Copper River Railroad. By it, one can motor more than 300 miles through the wilds and then have a 200-mile railroad ride down to the sea. Fairbanks has several hotels. I am stopping with Tony Nordale on Front Street, where I have a sitting room and bedroom at about $3 per day. I get my meals at a restaurant kept by a young lady whose rosy cheeks and tow hair have won her the nickname the little pink swede her charge is from fifty cents to seventy-five cents a meal and the food is delicious like many of the restaurants hers has a pet brown bear a cub fastened to a chain outside the front door it does tricks for sugar plums or sweet cakes 
When I had my hair cut today, it cost me twice what barbers charge in the States. As I left the barber shop, I stepped into the chair of a boot black outside, and the shine cost me a quarter. The day was hot, so when a miner asked me in the camp parlance if I would wash my neck, I knew what he meant and said yes. He treated me to a glass of lemonade at a cost of 25 cents. A little farther on, a newsboy offered me the Alaska Citizen, for which I handed him a quarter, the regular price for the paper. A quarter is the smallest coin in circulation here and means about the same as a nickel at home. Fairbanks is an incorporated town with a mayor and council and claims to be the liveliest city in Alaska. It has much civic spirit and practically all the community organizations and activities of a town many times its size in the states. Its women's club is affiliated with the Federation of Women's Clubs. There are two dailies and an attractive public library built of logs, besides a fire department and telephone exchange. More than half a dozen denominations have churches here. The most picturesque feature of Fairbanks is the homes of the people. The residences are chiefly log cabins ranging in size from two-room huts to some mansions of a dozen or more rooms. The cabins are built of cypress and birch logs with the bark on or off at the taste of the builder. The logs are chinked with arctic moss and their corners are joined, now in notched shape, now dovetailed and now with the logs sticking out like a dollhouse built of corn cobs. Nearly every home has its porch and on the smaller ones the low ridge roofs extend far out at the front to shade the lounging place of the family during the hot summer days. Some of the houses are half log and half frame. Some are roofed with boards, some with galvanized iron painted green, and others with poles covered with earth. The latter have grass and flowers growing upon them. Most of the houses have cellars, and all have their walls set deep in the ground and banked up for warmth. In the larger houses there are big living rooms with wide windows artistically set. Most of the log cabins have pretty green lawns with beds of beautiful flowers. All have gardens and nearly every one has its patch of potatoes and turnips. Hedges of sweet peas the height of a man may wall one side of a garden and great beds of poppies line the walks through the center. I have never seen anywhere flowers so large, so fresh, and of such a velvety texture, and I may add that I have never visited any town where the people seem to love flowers so much and where they have so many for themselves and their friends. There is a friendly strife between families as to which shall have the best and earliest vegetables. I called upon a lady last night who showed me one of her hothouse tomatoes weighing three pounds and a cauliflower from her garden with a head as big around as the largest dinner plate. She had lettuce as fine as any raised in the south and rows of peas six feet high with pods as big around as a man's thumb. This woman has the earliest potatoes in Fairbanks by starting them in boxes of earth in her kitchen a week or so before the frost goes out of the ground. To get some idea of the business of Fairbanks and interior Alaska, I visited today the headquarters of the Northern Commercial Company at Fairbanks. This company is the offspring of the Alaska Commercial Company, which leased the Seal Islands about a year after we bought the territory and established a general fur trading business, something like that of the Hudson's Bay Company. It made such vast sums dealing in seal skins 
that the royalties paid to our government were soon more than the first cost of the territory. The Alaska Company originated and developed the transportation of Alaska and had its stores and trading posts not only in the islands of the southeast, the Aleutians, the southern coast of the mainland, and in Bering Sea, but also at St. Michael, at the mouth of the Yukon, and all along that river to the boundary of Canada. When the Alaska Commercial Company dissolved, the Northern Commercial Company took over its business in interior Alaska, and now has a number of stores in the basins of the Yukon and the Kuskokwim, serving the mining camps and fur trading stations. It supplies many of the roadhouses and does a wholesale and retail business over a territory perhaps one-tenth as large as the United States. The company has a capital of $3,500,000, the stock being owned mostly in San Francisco and England. There are firms outside the Northern Commercial Company that do a large business, but none that covers such a great area and handles everything needed by the people. Their establishment here at Fairbanks, for instance, consists of stores, warehouses, and cellars, with a floor space of six or eight acres, machine shops and foundries, cold storage and warm storage plants, branches devoted to wholesale and retail, as well as waterworks, steam heat, and electric plants. The mercantile department has now on hand more than a million dollars worth of groceries, provisions, and other supplies, and its retail section is like a small department store in the States. Goods have to be bought in large quantities for the country is locked in ice for seven months of the year. With the use of the new railway, these stocks will not need to be so large. Less capital will be tied up in goods and merchants should be able to sell at somewhat lower prices. In one of the cellars, I saw 10,000 cans of condensed milk, condensed cream, and other canned goods, including egg powder, from which camp cooks, I was told, make up omelets quite as good as from ranch eggs. I saw thousands of eggs in the shell, which had been packed in the States, carried 1,000 miles to Skagway, and after crossing the mountains, had come down the Yukon. I saw canned potatoes and canned corn. The potatoes are cooked whole and put up in cans, in which shape they realize as much as 40 or $50 a bushel. Some of the corn is canned in the year and had only to be warmed to give the Alaskan miner corn on the cob in the heart of the winter. Goods have to be carefully packed for the Alaskan trade. They must stand the change of climate, the heat of the summer, and the cold of the winter. Perishable provisions are coated with gelatin. Hams, for instance, must be so protected that they will not be ruined if dropped in the snow or into a river. Each ham is sewed up in canvas, which is dipped in a gelatin to give it a glue-like coating and make it airtight. Cheese is packed the same way. The company keeps billiard and pool tables ready for shipment. It has wagons and sleds, some of the latter with a capacity for a 10-ton load. It has also dog sleds and dog harness with tugs, collars, and backstraps. The average dog sled is $10. Another article of merchandise is dog feed, a great deal of which is tallow. The huskies are fed once a day when on the trail and that at nightfall. Their usual meal is dried salmon and rice cooked with tallow. The Northern Commercial Company will sell about 100,000 pounds of tallow next winter. In the hardware department are all kinds of machinery and parts. There are great bales of wire cable, 
for hoisting the earth from the mines, steam engines, air compressors, and steam points for thawing the ground. There are bales of wire for chicken yards and fox farms. There is wire netting for fish wheels and some of fine mesh for the gold reduction plants. There are all sorts of farm machinery, plows, reapers, and mowers, as well as plumbing supplies, window sashes, and porcelain bathtubs. The Northern Commercial Company runs a steam plant which heats the business section of Fairbanks. It has a central station with pipes to all the buildings, including many private homes in an area of several blocks. The plant furnishes heat to its customers at so much a month throughout the year. It keeps the stores and the houses warm, even when the thermometer registers 60 or 70 below zero. The steam pipes run side by side with the water pipes, so that the latter are kept from freezing in the winter. Some of the smaller merchants denounce the company as a monopoly. There is probably considerable truth in the statement, but anyone can import goods, and there are several firms here doing a very large business for this part of the world. One is E.R. Peoples, Incorporated, and another is the Dominion Commercial Company, both of which have their headquarters at Fairbanks and sell to the mining camps within a radius of a hundred miles or so. Goods are sent by small steamers far up the tributaries of the Yukon. One of the far north trading stations is at Bettles, the head of steamship navigation on the Koyukuk River. From Bettles, supplies are carried something like 50 miles across country to placer mines. Another trading station is Wiseman, about 90 miles from Bettles. It is also on the Koyukuk, but the stream is so shallow that the goods are hauled there on barges drawn by horses. As the freight rate is a dollar and forty cents a ton, the prices at Wiseman are very high. Most of the merchandise is paid for in gold dust, the storekeeper weighing out the right amount from a miner's poke. Most of the business of Alaska is done upon credit, and anyone who would sell much has to give time. The people here tell me that the merchants are liberal in their advances to miners. I talked last night with a commercial traveler who started to Fairbanks with six horses freighting goods in over the trail. A cold snap caught him on the way and his horses died. He arrived in Fairbanks with only enough for a mining outfit, but the storekeeper gave him credit, and in company with a partner, he leased a claim on one of the creeks for 25% of the profits. At the end of the year, he was $2,000 in debt. The next winter, he and his partner had no money to pay wages, but by their own work, they got out $3,000 worth of pay dirt. They then paid up their debts, and within the next year or so, cleaned up $30,000 out of the claim. Indeed, few people realize the extent and possibilities of our Alaskan trade. The commerce in this territory in a typical year was $110 million. It was nearly as great as our trade with Spain or Sweden and was one-fifth as large as our total trade with all South America. The exports were twice the value of the imports. In proportion to the white population, the trade was greater than that of any other country of the world. The per capita commerce was about $2,200, while that of Great Britain was only $279. This means that the trade of Alaska was, on the average, for every man, woman, and child, almost eight times as great as that for every man, woman, and child in Great Britain. If this is true, when the land is a wild waste, so covered with moss and other vegetation 
that only about one-third of it has even a general survey, and not one acre in a thousand has been brought into cultivation, what may we not expect of the country with the railroad and with the developments of the future? End of chapter 17